Good evening. Oh, okay, now that's on. Hi, friends. Thank you for being with us. There is a particular alchemy of foresight and cosmos that happens here from time to time. And I feel that tonight as we welcome Khadijah Queen and Divya Victor to the Poetry Project. Two poets who maintain a kind of suspense in their work and also present to us deeply necessary, irrefutable evidence. I'm excited to see where the inquiry takes us tonight. I will be introducing our first reader, Divya Victor. We'll take a brief break, and then Tracy Grinnell will introduce the evening's second reader, Khadijah Queen. It is summer and the 20-year anniversary of my father's naturalization when I first sit down to read Divya Victor's Kith. We open in an airport in the middle of a story changing hands from a person who is leaving to one who is arriving and we land with the recognition by the end of the first page that the changing hands of story in fact is what the story is, has been, will be, again and again. The recognition that what we keep alive, we can only and inevitably keep alive through an entrustment to someone else. The manner of kith is consequence. Across 11 sections, indices of decision shape the we that we become. Victor traces how calculations inside systems of empire fracture and reconfigure us, specifically the diasporic families among us. The work traces modulations in etymology, narrative, the usages of objects, the many ramifications of production and consumption in which we are all inextricably bound. Everything costs. It is a hyper-consciousness that resonates in me as I read this work, especially this summer. Secrecy and telling cost, desire, costs, movement and dislocation especially have cost. But the counter in all of this are the acts of generosity, the vision of giving over that transcends our generations. And so I begin this manuscript. And so I made of poetry something other than an explanation of an us you couldn't know, of kith unitalicized. In addition to kith, Divya Victor is the author of several chapbooks and other texts, including Natural Subjects, Unsub, and Things to Do with Your Mouth. She has been a Mark Diamond Research Fellow at the US Holocaust Memorial Museum, a River Run Fellow at the Archive for New Poetry at UCSD, and a writer in residence at the Los Angeles Contemporary Exhibit. Her work has been performed and installed widely. She is assistant professor of poetry and writing at Michigan State University and a guest editor at Jacket 2. I am grateful for her work. Please join me in welcoming Divya Victor to the Poetry Project.
Good evening. Hi. Kyle, that was a very disarming introduction. One does not actually expect to be seen in introductions. Um, but I really appreciate being seen in yours. Um, I'm grateful to be here reading with Khadija and you know, thankful to Simone for getting this invitation started and to Kyle and Nicole for, and, and everyone else uh, for seeing it through. Um, and thank you all for being here <laughs> on a Wednesday from work and off to work again tomorrow. Thank you. Um, some of you know me, and for those of you who don't, by way of introduction, um, my, geogra my geographic identity spans a bit of a triptych. Um, I was born in India, and then when I was 11, we found a way to exit, and we went to Singapore, and when I was 18, we found a way to exit, and I came to the United States, and, and then the triptych modulated itself otherwise and became a quad, and things keep modulating. So I'm an immigrant multiple times over. I've held citizenships in India and Singapore and the United States, where I'm currently naturalized, as Kyle pointed out, naturalized. And in all these spaces that I've been, um, whenever I would find myself in the vicinity of someone who perhaps resembled me, a certain tilt of a nose, a certain arch of the eyebrow, a certain curl of the hair, a certain way pigment arranges itself on the flesh. And I would see these people who maybe resembled me at intersections or at readings or in restaurants, and my first instinct was a kind of magnetic instinct. I would kind of lean towards them, and, and I'd want to ask, are you okay? Are they being good to you? You're right. And at the same time, it didn't feel like a question that was for me to ask, because I didn't know whether I belonged to them, and I didn't know whether they belonged to me. In other words, I didn't know whether they were kith. I didn't know whether they belonged to me. And so in writing this book, um, I set out to figure, I figure out what kith is, and like all good acts of discovery, it begins with negation. So let me begin with negation. Kith. Neither your mother, nor your father, nor your sister, nor your brother. Neither your grandmother, nor your grandfather, nor your aunt by blood, nor your uncle by blood. Neither your child, nor your grandchild, nor your great-grandparent, nor your great-grandchild. Neither of this generation, nor the next, nor the one prior. Neither your cousin by blood, nor your cousin by bone. Neither inheriting nose, nor skin, nor brow, nor boat. Neither bestowing flesh, nor tooth, nor hair, nor gait. Neither in a manner of laughing, nor holding a plate. Neither descended from, nor ascending to. Neither named for, nor named after. Neither of brood, nor blood, nor stock, nor pool. Neither possessing by claim, nor disowned by name. Neither baptized at the ancestral font, nor buried in the shared grave. Neither living, nor dead, nor born, nor bred. Neither passed on, nor passing away, neither like, nor unlike, nor resembling tissue or cartilage. Neither by birthright, nor by death rites, nor by divination, nor miracle. Neither by gene, nor gestation. Neither by womb, nor tomb, nor cuckold, nor platoon. But, but, but what is sensed, 
but by what is seen, but by what is heard or felt in what moves between those not of blood and yet belonging together either on land or on air or on water or on paper, either through name or race or face or place of birth or blame, either as sign or shibboleth or overheard epithet, either as mark on a forehead or caught in crosshairs, either for paycheck or paper or map or license or visa, either by the queue or queue or queen or quill, either by mandate or state or decree or fiat of fate, either in law or labor or abode or abode, either by hell or high water, either by tongue or trade or tendency to wander, either as a manner of walking into rooms or crossing the arms, either by headdress or footwear or part of hair, either by grain or meat or milk or holy book, as the days of the week or the names for the moon, as a manner of love or as a manner of hate, as a manner of leaning or standing erect, either by ritual or by roads taken, by the way something pleats or drapes or hangs or is latent, as a way you move or at rest by passing or failing another's test, either as a way of knowing or as being known, either by the way a we exists or does not when we are not at home either as targets or by treason, either as a question of resemblance or in answer to a name, Kith. So negation only leads that far. And part of the work in figuring out what Kith means involves um, quite a bit of uncovering um, what it certainly does not mean. And what holds that, with the archives that hold non-meaning include mythology. And in my family, a family of immigrants, um, there are a lot of myths surrounding why someone immigrated, where someone immigrated to, and who they left with, and what they came back with, what they didn't come back with. And um, I started taking stock of that. And this is a series of poems that's based on that. And has an epigraph um, from the clinic for the study of hysteria and hypnotism um, that was located in Bordeaux sometime in the 1890s. And in this particular clinic, they describe a condition called ambulatory automatism, which is um, a condition in which somebody irrationally, supposedly, leaves a place to which they belong, begins walking without reason, and then discovers themselves as wandering. So the, the epigraph is from here. By the term ambulatory automatism, dromomeni, is understood a pathological syndrome appearing in the form of intermittent attacks during which the patient, carried away by irresistible impulse, leaves her home and makes an excursion or journey justified by no reasonable motive. The attack ended, the subject unexpectedly finds herself on an unknown road or in a strange town, swearing by all the gods never again to quit her penance. She returns home, but sooner or later, a new attack provokes a new escapade. And when I came across this, I thought there had never been a greater description of immigration. And so this is my own clinic in which I record some cases. 
In one such case, a woman was found so forcefully fornicating with her feet the soil under her that they thought she was attempting to bury her own body while standing upright. When pressed, she confessed that she had heard of travel and was attempting to push her body through to the other side of the world. There are many such cases. In one such case, a man so beaten by debt, two wives and four girl children menstruating in orchestrated vengeance against the greasy rupees in his pocket, rolled his bedding and straw mat and carried them out of his hut until he'd, after he'd shat out his gruel and before the cock crowed into the cadmium sky. Later, this story was told to four girls, all wives, pulling straw matting and feathers from their cunts, smelling of sleep and gruel, their afterbirth stamped and dated. This is all true stories, by the way. In one such case, a man was promised a wall made of gold bricks in a land where palm trees bled almond milk and oases of honey pooled wherever one stood. And so he took his passport out of the rinsed milk bag and offered it to an agent who flew him to the desert and left him there where he drank his own piss and never returned until his wife, gone bone dry in waiting, married a man with an identical mustache years later. Later, this story was told by the neighbor of a policeman greased with palm olive margarine and lifting a grinding stone above his head and onto a sleeping infant. In one such case, a woman embroidering the name of her fourth child into the mantelpiece tapestry was called by her husband to suckle oil from the Persian Gulf in a city that clotted around an oasis where centuries ago star-crossed lovers failed each other, Layla and Majnu, she dying in waiting, he walking miles and kissing every wall to know if she lived behind it and from which she would return without her hair and with a spool of black thread to spell again. Later, the story was told to children in a kitchen while smoothing the ruffled gills of mackerel and sharpening knives on gray slabs of granite drawn from a quarry where men had fallen over and over in love with their own destinies. clinic in Bordeaux would have some reasons for this cough. <laughs> Shall I continue my case studies? <laughs> in one such case, a woman exchanging aluminum pice for whole mackerel was called by her father through the gardener who was sent by the scullery maid who had heard from the family's jeweler that the bloom of gold which secured the daughter's marriage to the man from the land of arrows had a heart of wax. And so this woman walked backward, oily pomfret scales flashing at her gold bangles and pink rose spilling to the earth until she reached the land of arrows and rent each of his shafts in two and returned wearing fletching in her hair like firecracker flowers, genus Crossandra, life cycle perennial, and later there was no later. 
Are you all okay? <laughs> so, Kithis is an, um, it's an autobiographical book, and in a, in a sense. And as a genre and as a method, autobiography is for me a kind of successful attempt at failing at a catalog of the kinds of props that it takes to decorate and contextualize a theater of memory. And the poem that I'm going to read right now, which is called No Man's Land, is, is one such catalog, um, which tries to take account of all the objects that are in a particular memory, and the memory that this surrounds um, is just, it's just a year-long period where my father um, emigrated from India to Libya, and his work, and this is when Gaddafi is in power, and his work is to take salt water from the Mediterranean and to churn it into sweet water for Libyans to drink. And when he was away, um, and we were in Trichy in, in Tamil Nadu, we had no, no phones, and the Indian postal system was very deserving of its reputation at the time, and so for months, we wouldn't know whether he was alive, we wouldn't know whether he was well, and all these letters would show up every three months in these stacks of like 25, 35 letters, um, and we would read them one by one and spread them out on the dining table, and this poem comes from that moment. No Man's Land. A migrant is a disputed territory over which there is an hour. A migrant is a disputed territory over which there is an hour. A territory over which there is an hour. Hour a. A territory over which there is an a uh, hour. A. A migrant is a disputed territory over which there is a hour. A disagreement. An hour. There is hour disagreement, this is, this is an, over which there is an disagreement, there is a disagreement, this is an my, this is an, this is a, this is an my attempt, this is an, this is my attempt at resemblance, this is my attempt at resemblance, a my, a my, this is a an, this is an attempt at resembling a body, reaching a mine. This is an attempt at a body reaching a mine, an agreement with his. No man's land, my first attempt to spread myself thin over no man's land. To spread myself thin over no man's land. I take a small rolling pin the size of a sausage, which is ground meat with a skin around it. I take a rolling pin made of maple, shorn of bark and tapered by a steel rasp, sharpened on a stone, which is to say a maple shrub, a mature riparian split in rings and shedding its lobed and palmate leaves, shaking in a truck on its way, its racemes and umbels jangling in its chest to the orchestral rumble of the I-4, I-5, this acer glabrum roaring towards becoming a rolling pin, the size of a sausage small enough for a child hand to take and to hold. 
I take this rolling pin and hold back my left earlobe with my right hand, but having no third hand with which to both lift my earlobe and roll over my lobe with this small rolling pin. I lay myself on this floor made of strips of splintered pine so thin like a million chopsticks and hope that my weight will pin me to these pine boards. The heft of my head is pressing my lobe to the floor and I am dreaming of a paperweight big enough and made of glass as if the silica mined from the gaping pits of dunes and dredged from the ocean bed. The powdery remains of the sweat of beaches in this glass paperweight will be heavy enough. I hope I will be heavy enough to press down on my earlobe long enough to look up at the ceiling the whole time I press and roll over my earlobe with this small rolling pin in an attempt to spread myself thin over no man's land when I am 10 years old and falling asleep on my mother's lap and her left hand is crusted in a shell of chapati dough which she has left to dry rather than wake me while my father belatedly reads the Hindu newspaper where in full color a fleet of F-15s is parked at the Al-Karj naval base and the fuzz of pixels is a peach skin unrolled over the desert storm and folded in half before his lunch. Second attempt to collect all my moles to make a molehill on no man's land. I take a letter opener left to my mother by my grandfather who received it from his father who drove into a tree traveling in a motor car, flask quaking in his vest when the priest's vestments quivered at the funeral asking for the fees yet to be paid before the choir would ave the grand lad. I take that letter opener made of a sliver of elephant ivory drawn from the tusks, a wrinkled gray corpse, just so many finger clippings when seen from above, a thousand creamy crescent moons fallen on the dust. I take that letter opener and slip its tip under the corner of my eye where my first mole sits like a grain of dark gram or a long lentil sheltered by lashes and behind glasses. I take that letter opener to snap it up from my skin like a red waxen seal pressed on my eye like viscous black bitumen or the pus beige of beeswax colored with vermilion doused in shellac bathed in turpentine and pressed onto the corner of my eye with a signet ring worn on the wrinkled knuckles of some so-and-so. And so I slip the ivory sliver under the mole to split it from my skin and open this envelope. I want this as the first mole from my collection, but the wax has been set on fire and left to harden, sealing my skin at the first place where I can flap it open, the correspondence flittering out pages and pages in an attempt to collect my first mole to make a molehill on no man's land when I am 11 years old and falling asleep on my mother's lap and her left hand is holding a sheaf of postcards from Benghazi where my father churns salt water from the Mediterranean Sea into sweet water slumbering in a holy font nestled in the portico between six Doric columns of the old cathedral wearing and tearing its marbled skin off. And I stop at two attempts of doing things to no man's land. It's a kind of territory 
that you can only occupy for that long, I think. Um, when I uh, moved to the US, I was 18, and I really, really fucking wish I had a manual for that. And so at 33, I wrote one. This is uh, <clears throat> somewhat of an instructional failed manual for new immigrants, new Americans. And it has a, a sort of mini verse prologue, which I will read, and then I will sing the epigraph. Um, and the epigraph is from a movie called Nyagan um, by the director Mani Ratnam, and um, the lyrics are written by Pulame Pitten and Maestro Ilya Raja. Paper people. What I know is this. When my grandmother dies, it will be in a place where she knew no one but us. What I do is this. I write. When my grandmother dies, it will be in a place where we knew no one but her. How to survive on land if you are made of paper. Then Pandi Chima Yile, Terodum Vidi Yile, Man Pola Vandavane Yaraditaro Yaraditaro Yaraditaro. Valarum pirayete yade Inium marde tembade Arda manasitangade Arda manasitangade in the town of Tenpandi, on the streets where chariots race, you who stolen like a brown fawn, who beat you down? Who beat you down? Who beat you down? Oh dear waxing moon, do not wane, do not even now weep out in pain. If you wail, my heart won't bear it. When you wail, my heart can't bear it. So this is how to survive on land if you are made of paper. Keep variations on an exit handy. Mend the sandals and eat enough dirt to grow accustomed to waiting on new ground. Walk up to strangers with maps and beg an interpretation and ask them to divine your path past the Walmart and into the parking lot where you live in a Toyota hatching suitcases, unpacking plans. Make of your walk a wall. Make of your arms an armory. Make of a memory nothing but self-same, but in the darkness of movie theaters, 
memorize the faces with lined eyes, unlined foreheads, untied frenulums, undone sternums. Walk home with the dead flittering out of your thrifted coats, cinematic litter. Did you see, have you seen us do like this? Line the cupboards with old visas. Rim the stamps with teacups and wait for them to be upset by guests. Hold your breath. Stuff the walls with hair shorn for devotions. Save your coupons for coffins elsewhere. Press no hibiscus into old books. Undo your face every night with metal and mercury. Drag your mothers out from the roots of your hair with bleach and heat. Nail your feet to the rails and suck words from mouths like fillings clinking into basins and from them smelt the metal and make eyes for your dead. Learn to stay wary of waves. Weave teeth into grins. Stand in line and disappear in plain sight and hide your language like a wetness for the wrong one. Draw chalk lines between your children and ask them to call each other what you called your sister, your brother, and gather back the parts of their name every time, every time they toss them on the streets, throw them in the trash, clean them, letter for letter in the cold tub. Say yes, please, thank you, often and with nodding, never shake the head to mean yes or no, never mean anything other. Count the old knees and buy the ointments in bulk to stave off another winter. Tell the old knees the stories of their kneeling, the stories of their standing hard against the gallop of gunfire, the wallop of leather. Close the doors twice as often as you open them. Refuse the mailman his greeting. Rush at letters and make from the envelopes a small iron lung. Spin sugar from peaching light. Consider your neighbor, the other neighbor's neighbor. Your walls wear two clocks, tell two times. Love both enough to forget the difference when you call home where the arms point. Park the car like an unhinged gate. Borrow small sums and sorrow your savings into the children's acronyms MA, JD, MBBS, PhD, DDS, MBA, NRI, USA, USA, USA. Arrange the children in the closet. Make of their skin a resemblance to papers. Live off the fat of the landmine. Pull from your own elbows the twine to bind and hogtie yourself to a passerby. Sing your new national anthem into their ear. Mourn your dead in letters. Bury your dead in the sky. Chalame. Let the eagles eat their hearts out. Let the eagles eat our hearts out. I have no idea what, how much time I have.
gets from bad to worse, you guys. But I think we're used to that. I'm going to read a piece called Laundry List. And um, it needs no introduction. Um, except by way of context, I will say that the research that led me in towards this knowledge um, was a book called The Complete Indian Housekeeper and Cook, written in 1888 by two women who were, quote-unquote, the English girls to whom fate may assign the task of being house mothers in our Eastern Empire, which is very specific job description. Um, so their names were Flora, Annie Steele, and Grace Gardner. And this epigraph says a little bit about the... Uh, the gendered and whitened comportment towards um, Indians at the turn of that century. How are we to punish our Indian servants when we have no hold either on their minds or bodies, when cutting their pay is illegal, and few, if any, have any real sense of shame? The answer is obvious. Make a hold. To show what absolute children Indian servants are, we have for years adopted castor oil as an ultimatum in all obstinate cases on the ground that there must be some physical cause for their inability to learn or to remember. So here is one way of remembering. On April 13, 1919, the British Indian Army soldiers under the command of Brigadier General Reginald Dyer opened fire on an unarmed gathering of men, women, and children picnicking in an enclosed urban garden called the Jallianwala Bagh. This garden is located in Amritsar, India. Amritsar is home to the Sikh holy site, the Golden Temple, as well as the Sikh parliament. During the massacre, the firing lasted about 10 minutes. 1,650 rounds were fired, which is 33 rounds per British soldier. There were at least 400 fatalities and 1,500 wounded Indians. The urban garden was bounded on all sides by houses and buildings and had very few narrow entrances, most of which were kept permanently locked. Since there was only one exit, from this situation, from this history. Except for the one already blocked by armed troops, people desperately tried to climb the walls of the park and fell to their death. Many jumped into the well inside the compound to escape the bullets. Later, rescuers said that 120 corpses were plucked out of the well. The following poem is a speculative laundry list of outfits left behind by the corpses at the 1919 Jallianwala Bagh massacre if all victims were female and British instead of Indian women, men, children, and infants. 6,000 calico nightgowns notch stained with mud. 6,000 silk or wool nightgowns not covered in blood. 6,000 calico combinations not damp with well water. 6,000 merino vests not splattered with blood. 6,000 spun silk vests not stained by rust. 6,000 trimmed muslin bodices not ripped by gravel. 12,000 Paris tan stockings not smeared with mud. 
12,000 lyle thread stockings not speckled with blood, 2,000 flannel winter petticoats not dripping with well water, 3,600 cotton pocket handkerchiefs not speckled with burrs, 2,000 evening handkerchiefs not stained by loam, 2,000 winter morning dresses not grent by gravel, 2,000 tennis dresses not ripped in flight, 6,000 summer tea gowns not ripped in flight, 1,000 riding habits not ripped in flight, 1,000 sun jackets not ripped in flight, 1,000 Ulster capes not ripped in flight, 2,000 sunshades not ripped in flight, 2,000 tennis shoes not shot through, 2,000 evening dress shoes not shot through, 4,000 pairs of house shoes not shot through, 2,000 pairs of work and gardening shoes not shot through. The stockings would have been neither open work nor black in color. The dresses would have been of washing material and of the sort requiring little starch. Summer cashmeres, delaines, and the washing silks would have been suitable, as would have been tweeds and warm shrugs. Gloves would have been rolled up in flannel and bottled in prune jars to keep them from becoming soggy in the humidity, along with the flowers, the ribbons, and the neck scarves. Leather goods would have been wiped weekly and the dresses aired. Sewing needles would have been sealed in court plaster and camphor would have been added to all the chests to keep away mold. Gauze and tall dresses would have been disastrous, however, as the damp makes them drop to pieces, as the damp makes them drop to pieces, as the damp makes them drop to pieces. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a five minute break and then we'll come back.
And let's start to reassemble. Um, I think we're just about almost all back, slowly. Um, and I'm very pleased now to welcome Tracy Grinnell, who will introduce Khadija Queen. Hi. Khadija Queen is the author of five books. Most recently, I'm So Fine, A List of Famous Men and What I Had On, from Yes, Yes Books, which was a finalist for the 2018 Balcones Poetry Prize and CLMP Firecracker Award for Fiction. Earlier poetry collections include Conduit from Akasic Black Goat, Black Peculiar from Noemi Press, and Fearful Beloved from Argos Books. Her verse play, Non Sequitur, won the Leslie Scalapino Award for Innovative Women's Performance Writing. The prize included a full production of the play at Theater Lab in December 2015 by Fiona Templeton's theater company, The Relationship, and a book publication of the play by Litmus Press. She's an assistant professor of creative writing at University of Colorado Boulder and serves as core faculty for the Mile High MFA in creative writing at Regis University. She is also in her third year in the PhD program at the University of Denver. <clears throat> this week, the Poetry Magazine podcast features Khadija Queen's poem, If Gold, Your Figure as Mirror on the Ground Is. In writing this poem, Queen placed a gold compact mirror on the ground outside and watched what was reflected there. Queen describes her preference for writing in public places and what struck me about this is her ability to navigate the exposure and vulnerability that this entails while capturing the fleeting movement of images passing by and at the same time preserving interiority, the intimacy and nuance of the movements of one's own psyche. Writing about non sequitur, Ronaldo Wilson notes, Queen's complex manifestations of race, sex, and desire rearrange bodies and material lives where beauty behaves as a whip, animating perception and perspective into an ever-surprising mix, unquote. In fact, this is one of the fundamental, fundamental gestures of Queen's work she writes in a range of forms, her poetic voice like water seeking its own level. Whether poem, prose, or performance text, Queen is writing in a, quote, shifting landscape of evolving interiors, a most apt proving ground for our current response, our responses to current and ongoing local, national, global, local crises. Quote, I can't see myself on purpose, she writes in If Gold, Your Figure as Mirror on the Ground is. Christina Marie Darling writes in her review of Non Sequitur, Queen reveals the impossibility of a harmonious and unified psyche. She suggests skillfully and powerfully that we have not only divided communities against themselves, but we have divided our own hearts and minds, unquote. And yet, the impossibility of a harmonious and unified psyche is precisely the nature of our subjectivities at this moment. 
quote, the inscrutable skin I chose. And it is also true that we make things worse all the time by participating in endless divisions and fractures and ruptures that serve to traumatize us further. However, the poetic writing I find most beautiful, most elegant, most urgent, is the work that can write this impossibility into the world so that we may emerge into it, flourish in it, so that we may resist all the insidious misogynies and bigotries that would tear apart our disharmonious, or shall we say, multiply harmonious and complex beings. As Don Lundy Martin writes, hers is a future voice. In I'm So Fine, she writes, the truth of beauty means both spotlights and shadows find you, and it takes more than instinct to know where to stand on the stage. <laughs> it is with deep admiration that I welcome Khadija Queen to the stage, such as it is. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tracy. What a gift um, that introduction was, and thank you for your work that you do um, in poetry. Um, look how gorgeous you guys all are. I have to take a photo. <laughs> Say cheeses. <laughs> okay. So. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Simone. Thank you, everyone who's been involved in organizing this event. And um, thank you for bringing yourselves here on a Wednesday night. And thank you, Divya, for your incredible reading. Um, so I thought we could laugh. I was in the Navy as much as my students, who are mostly like 18-year-old um, regular, non-poetry people, uh, civilians. <laughs> Don't believe me when I say I was in the military before they were born, but in fact I was, so this would be in the 90s. So there's the, if there's any theme to what I'm gonna talk about, it'd be like the 90s and trying to be a person. So when I was in the Navy, I was on board a ship. The ship was the USS Cole. Uh, I left before the bombing. It was bombed uh, in Yemen in the year 2000, but I left before that, although I did know a lot of the people who were on the ship. Um, so this little excerpt from the prose book in progress is mostly about them. There were a lot of pranks. So this section is the prank section. ID 10 Tango. So if you can just picture those words, those letters in the number, ID, 10 tango in your brain. T is for tango. Collier came up to me as I finished the dailies or daily maintenance on the torpedo tube. My coveralls and my hands were stained with grease. My knees hurt from kneeling on the deck. The sun beat down on the ship. It was only 8 a.m., but it was warm already, unseasonably warm for April. Hey, queen, he said officiously. You need to fill out an ID 10 tango form. A what, I said, completely uninterested in being interrupted. An ID 10 tango form. He said it slowly, patiently. ID 10 tango. What the fuck is that? 
Brown didn't tell you? He seemed concerned. I frowned. No, nobody told me. You were supposed to do it this morning. You need to get up to personnel and get it filled out now before you get in trouble. Brown said for me to tell you. Brown was a first-class petty officer in charge of paperwork for our division. He was also a stickler for detail. Even so, I wasn't about to automatically heed Collier's sudden message, not when he was acting so out of character. I'm doing dailies. Well, they just call for you down at Sonar One. Really? I didn't even look up at him, just kept greasing the hinges on the giant gray tubes. I'll get it when I finish. For real, queen, hate to see you get in trouble again. I got in trouble for a wardrobe violation. <laughs> Side note. I looked at him out of the corner of my eye. I'm almost done. Collier waited as I moved on from the hinges to the screws. It only took a few minutes. I turned back to face him as I started to pack up my tools and supplies. Now what is this form again? The ID10 Tango form, everybody has to do it. Wonder why I never heard of it. It's your first ship, they don't expect you to know everything. He was trying to sound all kindly and wise when just that morning at quarters, he'd been his usual smart-ass self belching and playing with his false front tooth. I looked at him like he was crazy. <laughs> he had been on the ship only a few months longer than me acting like he knew something. This smelled like some bullshit. But you never know at the Navy, I thought. I'll call up to personnel then and tell them I'll be there after I take this stuff back to hazmat, I said. Sailors had to sign out maintenance materials from a chemical cesspool of a room below decks called hazmat, short for hazardous materials, and return them when we finished. Sometimes they ran out of supplies we needed and I learned to make friends with and or flirt with the boatswain's mates and supply people to get the right cleaner or grease or just a plain old paintbrush. I wiped my hands on my thighs, started walking toward the ship phone to call the personnel office. The two female yeomen lived in my birthing in the two bunks below me. We were cool, so they would let me know what the deal was. Collier grabbed my arm. No, no, don't do that. Just go on up there to personnel. I'll take this stuff to hazmat for you. I looked at his hand on my arm, and he removed it. Since when did you get so nice? Just a few days before, the last day before... The last day of the underway, he left the torpedo supply room propped open with one of the giant red toolboxes we kept in there. He left it there knowing it was too heavy for me to pick up, though I tried and hurt my back when the ship did a 180-degree maneuver. I was trying to move it in order to keep the room from flooding. Sanchez and I had just organized it, unknotted endless heavy hoses and lines, put everything in order. But no one was there to help me move the toolbox, so the room was ruined. We had to redo all that work and then some. Collier fumbled for words, but only temporarily. He kept a straight face. I I'm just doing what Brown told me. I ain't going nowhere till I talk to personnel. I jogged over to the phone and dialed the extension. Petty Officer Diaz, who, who was one of the ones who slept two bunks below me, picked up. Hey girl, what the hell is an ID-10 tango form? Diaz cracked up laughing. Do you guys get what that is now? All right. That's what I thought I said. I hung up the phone and turned to Collier, who had caught up to me. Nice try, Collier. Damn! His face turned red and he hopped up and down a couple times like he, he was the troll under the bridge from the Billy Goat's Gruff story. I'm gonna get you one of these days. Whatever I said, laughing and gathering my things. Collier stalked off, spitting over the side into the ocean and kicking at the railing. What a relief. I was tempted to fall for it, just for a minute. 
If I had, they would have ragged on me for at least a good month. I smiled to myself, thinking that maybe I would be okay on this ship. Maybe I could hold my own. But I couldn't have been more wrong, at least in terms of comfort or stasis. Every day was a chess game, and I didn't always make the right move. B1RD. In early summer, a new guy, Stevenson, joined our division just before we went underway to do combat exercises with other ships. Stevenson was a pinkish, round-shouldered kid from Nebraska, maybe 19, at least six foot two, and doughy with an overhanging belly. His physical characteristics, on top of a soft-spoken demeanor, made him an easy target. Collier started on him first with jabs about his weight, but Pogue was the true mastermind of all good pranks. Pogue, a blue-eyed, curly-haired blonde from New Jersey, was rail-thin, six-foot-five, so tall he had to duck to walk through the portholes, forever bumping his head on the overhead pipes, after which he would swear so creatively it somehow took the goofiness out of his clumsiness. He wore small, thin glasses and was rumored to have scored a perfect 1600 on his SATs. He knew his shit when it came to his job, too, top of his class in sonar apprenticeship or A school and getting promoted to E5 on his first try during a tough testing cycle. Pogue spoke quickly and clearly, making his ability to insult people that much more piercing. God help you if you got on his bad side. Your every misstep would be fodder for cruel and constant ridicule. When Stevenson went to use the head, a Navy term for bathroom, Poe called the watch on the aft missile deck to make sure he had an accomplice. As soon as Stevenson got back, he started in on him. I got a job for you, Stevenson. It's very important. Stevenson leaned forward in his chair. Pogue proceeded to make this task seem like the most important job on the whole ship. Stevenson nodded and yesed. Pogue pumped him up until he was wound up tight with stress and duty. Then he sent him on his fake rounds, giving him a clipboard with a checklist of meaningless tasks that he'd printed out. Stevenson was gone for just a few minutes and came back whistling and swaggering as he handed the checklist back to Pogue. So how'd it go, Stevenson? Fine, great, great job, thanks. Stevenson smiled and sat down on one of the black swivel chairs next to Roberts. Pogue went over the checklist, lifting the page and pointing to the last item. Oh, hey, did you flip the B1RD switch? It's not checked off. Uh, no, sir, I couldn't find it. I thought it was a typo. You mean they didn't tell you about the B1RD in A school, asked Pogue, his face full of consternation. Stevenson frowned. You could tell he was really trying to remember that shit. No, sir. Boy, it's gone, down, gone to pure hell down at ASW. ASW was short for anti-submarine warfare, the name of the service school that all sonar technicians have to graduate from. And don't call me, sir, I'm not a fucking officer, I work for a living. Get back out there and ask the watch to show you how to flip the B1RD switch before the Bravo Charlie blows a fucking gasket. There was no such thing as a Bravo Charlie, but Stevenson was so flustered he didn't pay attention. Yes, sir, oh, oh, I mean, Petty Officer Pogue. Stevenson left again. He was gone for a good 15 minutes, and in the meantime, Pogue and company were just getting warmed up. When he got back, Stevenson was sweating, dark circles spreading under his armpits, his face splotched with crimson. He looked like he was about to cry. I asked the watch how to flip the B1RD, and he told me to get the fuck out of his face. Pogue yelled at him. Are you going to let some shithead boatswain's mate talk to you like that? You are a goddamn sonarman. That guy got into the Navy on a don't send me to jail scholarship. Go back out there and tell that numbfucker if he doesn't tell you how to do it, you'll kick his ass. But right on cue, Collier came up. 
Come on, man, I'll go with you, he offered, putting a protective arm around Stevenson's shoulder. That was kind of an odd spectacle since Collier was at least five inches shorter and 50 pounds thinner. As he left the room with Stevenson, Collier turned back to us and gave us a malicious grin, showing off his missing tooth lost in a bar fight just a few weeks before, his tongue moving the new false tooth up and down. Once they had been gone a few minutes, Pogue readied for the next round. Okay, when they get back, let's send them to the quarterdeck. No, no, the bridge, said Roberts. The bridge is where the ship's navigation team works. I think the watch's boss is there. Let me see. He took a folded POD, or plan of the day, out of his pocket and scanned it with a calloused finger. The ship's main office puts out a POD each day, listing events, the menu, and the ship's watch schedule. Yeah, Chief Jones is up there. He knows what's up. Lame-ass Gerard is on duty on the quarterdeck. He'll just blow it all to hell. Why don't you leave the guy alone, I ventured. I had been quiet until then, but I was starting to feel bad for Stevenson. Pogue looked at me for a second, then rolled his eyes. Aw, Queen, don't fuck it up. Let him figure it out. Yeah, Queen, Roberts offered. Let us have our fun. This ain't the place for a weak stomach, Knox said seriously, looking at me over the rims of his glasses. Nobody else was in there, so I was alone in my distaste. I sighed and went back to the stack of thick sonar equipment manuals in front of me and kept trying to study for the promotion exam. I turned up my headphones in hopes that maybe the static hum or occasional wail or dolphin call would reduce the other sailors' chatter, but it didn't work too well. The ocean stayed relatively quiet. A short time later, Stevenson came back more flustered than before, breathing harder, his face bright red and dripping with sweat. Collier couldn't help me because he never had to find the B1RD before either. The watch didn't do anything but flip me off. The sheer inner strength it must have taken for the rest of the guys not to laugh was stunning. I had to put my head down and take deep breaths. But at the same time I wanted to laugh, my stomach was knotted with anxiety. You never knew how people might react to a prank. Not everybody could take it in stride. Pogue kept it going. Well, that's just fucking ridiculous. I tell you what. Go up to the bridge and tell the chief what happened. That fucking boatswain's mate's middle name will be Hayes Gray for the next six months. Hayes Gray is the name of the paint used on the ship. Most everyone dreaded painting. It was one of those endless ship tasks, and all the enlisted people got a taste. Boatswain's mates got the worst of it, though, having to get into a harness and paint the sides of the ship. Kind of like bungee jumping without the landing. That's the kind of pun punishment Pogue was referring to. But by now, Stevenson was getting sick of the chase. How come you can't show me where it is, he complained. How come you can't tell me where it is, Pogue whined back at him. Shut up and don't be a fucking baby. Go to the fucking bridge and tell the chief what happened. Stevenson was getting pissed. He tried to defend himself, but he was no match for Pogue's quickness. He pursed his thin lips and wiped the sweat from his forehead and neck with an old t-shirt he pulled from his back pocket, then went about his task. As soon as he left, Pogue called Chief Jones at the bridge. He gave him the lowdown as the other guys waited smugly for the denouement. Roberts leaned back in his chair and picked his teeth with a toothpick. Knox leaned forward, whistling Camp Town races, his fingertips touching. Collier sat next to me at the other watch station with that stupid grin on his face, playing with his false tooth to gross me out. A few minutes later, the phone rang and Pogue jumped up to answer it, cursing as he bumped his head on the overhead pipes. Sonar one, Pogue! He held the phone loosely, and after a pause, he broke into a wide smile. Then he let out a whoop. We got him, yelled Roberts, who managed to cackle like an old man, even though he was only in his mid-30s. 
Apparently, when Stevenson got to the bridge and asked how to flip the B1RD switch, all the sailors flipped him off and laughed wildly, finally letting him in on the joke. He came back to Sonar 1 just as there was a pause in the raucous laughter, stooped and sheepish and red. He looked defeated, exhausted, and angry all at once. The guys broke into applause. Just wait till you get that pink belly, said Roberts. Pink belly, I found out later, is when all the people in your division punch or slap your stomach until it turns pink, assuming your skin is light enough for that discoloration to occur. Only those who complete a six-month cruise earn that privilege, however. Roberts tipped his plastic Coke bottle toward Knox's, then raised it to Stevenson. Welcome to the USS Cole. They laughed and toasted and sipped. Still nursing his pride, Stevenson tried to stay quiet, but they made him shed his funk with a sort of twisted, relentless pressure, talking about nothing and everything. For the rest of the night, the older sailors swapped sea stories about much crueler tortures they endured. We younger ones listened, careful to hear the lessons and warnings inside every joke, though Pogue beat on his chest for a week, lamenting days gone by when pink bellies were the easiest of initiations, when it was still customary to draw blood. So I grew up in Los Angeles, and I should say, um, what should I say about this thing? It was really fun to write, but it started out as a list of famous people and what I was wearing, kind of like David Letterman. And then people thought they were funny, so I just started writing more of them. And then when I was talking about them, um, my niece, who's like 16, she's like, that sounds really fucked up. And I didn't think about it. Like, that's, that was like the, the, the tipping point, right? Because I didn't think about these things as fucked up. It was just the way it was. And there were so many. Like, I could, I could probably write eight of these because it was like a daily happening. So, um, but I still kept the fun part. I met Marcus Chong on the 105 bus, method acting. I was going home in a flower dress after work. I worked at Fatburger. I was 18, and I think he was twice that. I had my uniform in my backpack with my statistics homework and woman warrior. I recognized him and said I liked Panther. This was way before the Matrix. He asked for my number. We talked on the phone. He came to visit me on his bike since he didn't live far from my job and ordered a veggie burger. I had a lemonade on my 15-minute break in my black Fatburger outfit and ugly food service shoes. He asked me on a date. I said yes. He called with a plan. I said I thought we were going somewhere, but he wanted to make me dinner at his house. I said, no, I don't know you well enough to go to your house. He got angry at the end. <laughs> I met Cuba Gooding Jr. at the Beverly Center Food Court. I was 16. Boys in the Hood had just come out. My best friend Tiffany dared me to ask if I could hug him. He said I was beautiful and seemed really happy to get that hug but I brown blushed nervously and he sat a few booths away with his friend and veggie slices from Sbarro and smiled a lot. I wore a Tiff's Kente cloth bomber jacket and red lipstick. I had perfect skin and didn't drink carbonated beverages. The Beverly Center food court is also where I met Devante's brother from Jodeci. I forgot his name, but he, we didn't really meet. 
He was just looking at my eyes and then looking at my ass as I kept walking. I really liked red lipstick back then. I got it that day with my saved allowance at Rexall across the street, a blue red in a gold case, and we both had on white jeans. I was 17, and I remember it was summer. Dave Chappelle also looked at my ass, and he also said, damn. We were in the frozen food section at Ralph's in North Hollywood, and I half smiled. I was wearing my favorite old Levi's with the hole at the left side belt loop and had just moved back to L.A. with my two-year-old. Chris Rock did the same thing, same jeans at the movie theater across from the Beverly Center, and he thought he wouldn't be recognized with that newsboy cap on, but I saw him. He looked twice. <laughs> DJ Quick was really nice. This, the video is safe and sound. If you Google safe and sound on YouTube, you can see me like in a striped dress going past with braids. Like 30 pounds lighter also. Anyway, DJ Quick was really nice. I was in his video because I did modeling and movie and TV extra work to pay for school. He didn't say or do anything disrespectful and I appreciated that. I had on a striped dress fitted and long with a slit on the side. I was 19 and needed a ride home. I'd let my sister use the car and the shoot ended early so the director let me use his cell, one of those big ass Motorola flips, but no one was answering at home so I had to call this Nigerian guy that I'd just met the day before and he kind of creeped me out but the set was in the straight hood and it was getting dark so I called him for a ride. He came zooming up the street 15 minutes later in a red BMW and wanted to hang out, but I really, really didn't. We were going to the Century Club later, me and my girls, so I said we would meet him there, but I really wasn't going to meet him. He could just find me if he could, and if he didn't, oh well. And we went. It was fun at first. My sister's friend had double Ds and never wore underwear, so we got in free everywhere. <laughs> and we saw a bunch of Lakers. Then she had to go and get drunk. We had to save her from this boxer dude who was trying to take her home. She didn't know what the F she was doing, so I stayed with her while our younger sisters went to get the car. Then the guy grabbed her by the arm. I could see it turning red. I wouldn't let go of her hand. I called for help. No one came. My shoe fell off. Where the fuck are they with the goddamn car, I thought, and called for help again, louder, over and over, and finally. Finally, a bouncer came and told the guy to leave, and the boxer guy looked at me and acted like he was going to walk off, then turned around and lunged. I thought he was going to punch me in the face, but I didn't move. I didn't flinch because fuck him. But thank God the bouncer held him back, even though he rolled his eyes at us once the boxer finally left and mumbled something about stupid bitches. My sister and I met Keanu Reeves at our high school. He rode up on a black motorcycle, and when he took off his helmet, I thought my sister would faint. We were in the PE office by the basketball court doing stat girl duties for the team, and I told her to look out of the window. And this boy who liked her immediately got jealous. That fool rushed outside, puffing up his chest and trying to act all hard when Keanu joined the guys on the court for a pickup game. But Keanu was so cool about it. And when the game was over, I dragged my suddenly shy sister out there. I thought her face would explode. She turned so red and smiled so hard, and she couldn't talk. I had to be the one to ask Keanu if I could take a pic of them together. Luckily, we happened to have a disposable camera that day, and my sister, who had a foot-thick scrapbook of Keanu clippings from YM and Details and People, still has it, got her own picture to put on the front. <laughs> she had on my clothes that day, a jewel-toned striped blazer and everything else black, velvet choker, bodysuit, stirrups, and suede platform sandals, plus her own burgundy wool beret. Keanu had a patchy beard and his hair reached his shoulders. He wore basketball shorts and a faded black shirt with a tiny hole at the neck and smiled. My mom was waiting at the bus stop in 1960 when she saw Chuck Connors. 
He flirted with her, did a double take as she waited to ride the western line down Hollywood Boulevard to her job at Max Factor. She was only 21 and had just moved to LA and still wore crinoline under her dresses. He drove by the next day, too, in a long white Cadillac convertible with cattle horns texasing the hood and his face all sideburns and grin. She said it was fun watching him try, but I didn't give him no play. My mom has never been very starstruck, but she loved her some Billy D. My sister and I love Star Wars, and when she saw Billy D. Williams smiling at her from a three by five trading car we got from the Circle K, she went a little nuts, hollering and snatching at who we thought of as Lando Calrissian. She shouted, whoa, oh, and snatched it, and smiled and said, may I have that one to put in my wallet, please? My mother has a gorgeous smile, and I liked Lando too, but not that much. So I said sure and giggled, and I must have been four or five when Star Wars came out and probably had on a Kmart short set, and when she ran into him at the Whole Foods in Studio City in 2004, she said to herself, oh my God, my hair is not right, my clothes are not right, my shoes are not right, and hid behind a pyramid of assorted vitamins. A moment of appreciation for Dr. Anita Hill and Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. I never met Snoop Dogg, but I met his homie Lil Half Dead. It was a video shoot for Half Dead that I don't think ever came out. Another extra assignment my sister and I were both chosen for and paid a premium on top of the non-union rate, but it was not enough for what we had to go through. The dozen of us girls there had no dressing room, so we packed the tiny ladies' room four at a time to change into wardrobe as Half Dead's degenerate entourage kept knocking on the door and trying to peek underneath and making lewd comments. Half Dead himself flashed cash stacks at me and got mad when I refused his proposal to kick it later. All of a sudden, I was a stuck-up bitch, and then it was time to start the shoot. We got called to set, and the smoke machine was going on the faux dance floor and midway through the unremarkable song. One of the goons tried to pull my sister's dress down in the front, his finger actually touching her chest. The AD had no control, and half-dead, who looked half-dead, I mean, it was like his whole aura was dirty. He got on his bitch tirade again until one of the girls started grinding on him and pulling her skirt up, revealing a thong, and the entourage went crazy throwing dollars at her. My sister and I put on our sneakers with our dresses and got our stuff and our signed vouchers because they damn sure were going to pay us regardless because that shit was over the, over the fucking top and we couldn't get out of there fast enough. We started hearing threats. When I worked in retail, my coworker said Suge Knight liked her hairy legs. And I don't know how true it was, but she said he bought the gold chain she wore every day, and this was the year Tupac died, and I drove my Oldsmo with the lights on in the daytime. She and I were both 19 and had to wear skirt suits or slacks in our department. We sold CD players and handheld recorders and tried to get people to buy warranties. Shout out to Circuit City. And she could talk those customers into buying almost anything. And she tried to help me think beyond thrifting and wet seal. She tried to tell me about Jabot jeans and Gucci bags, and she really loved her small Chanel. I don't remember her name, but I remember a dude who worked in the AV department who kept trying to add me on LinkedIn 20 years after the fact. Like, for real, nope. <laughs> and I won't say if my coworker got hurt, but she made a fact out of fear. And once I remember makeup over bruises, the 1990s dangerous for women like any other decade like now. And the main thing about the guy trying to add me on LinkedIn is how close he stood to me whenever I wore my mother's baby blue v-neck button down because he was trying to look down the front. 
I never met Donald Trump, but I sure have been grabbed by the you-know-what. And I really don't even want his name in my book, and I almost didn't tell this story, but sometimes it's important to name names. And the luxury of fame is that it doesn't matter what a nobody says. If you have enough money, you can buy any kind of truth you want. When you're a star, they let you do it. And actually, when you're a man in general, the one who did that to me wasn't anyone famous. It was a homeless man on the La Brea bus. I was 15 and had on a white t-shirt and a denim skirt. I was with my mother and she tried to protect me, but he chased me from the front of the bus to the back. And the driver, who happened to be really tall and muscular with his uniform sleeves, rolled up past his biceps and sunglasses on with a strap, he had to stop the bus at Rodeo by the old movie theater and push the homeless guy down the exit stairs. And even on the street, he still kept banging on the flimsy doors and sticking out his tongue and shouting. I'll just read a couple more. How y'all doing? Three more. When we met Tupac, we had just left the arena on Sunsite because it was gay night and we couldn't get in. We were five of us crammed into Kelly's red hatchback about to just get some Taco Bell and go home. When we saw him in a black Mercedes equally crammed and we screamed and yelled, we love you! And his friends invited us to a hotel party which seemed sketchy to me but it was Tupac and it was Kelly's car and she wanted to go so we went. It was not far away, also on Sunset. By the time we got a parking space, a bunch of girls were already there talking to him. He was surrounded and shorter than all of them. His head looked like it was bigger than his body. <laughs> But he had really white, perfect teeth and a leather vest with no shirt on and all those hot tattoos. We asked one of the bodyguards where the bathroom was so we could freshen up, and of course we all had to go together. And Kelly started talking about how much she wanted to get at Tupac. She was from Louisiana and lived in a house in the Hollywood Hills, the richest of us, which was easy actually because we were mostly poor and lived in apartments. But she said she wanted to go to his room and have sex with him and say he raped her. Can you believe that shit? She wanted the money. And we all laughed at first, but this chick was serious. We told her we weren't going for it. She said, whatever, I'm cuter than all y'all and I drove, I'm gonna do whatever the fuck I want. She unbuttoned her top down to the lace of her white bra and walked out of the bathroom. I had on one of my least favorite outfits because it was time to do the laundry and I might be blocking it from memory, but I think it was like brown or olive green or something yuck. And the four of us debated what to do about Kelly. So I decided to call my dad for a ride home. Came out of the bathroom and asked where the pain phone was. Back then we all had pagers but no cell and one of the bodyguards was blocking another girl from entering the lobby. She was at least six feet tall and barely dressed but super young in the face. He asked for ID. It was a middle school ID, she was only 13. He told her, go home right now, little girl. Where are your parents? We were in shock, but glad he seemed decent. We felt like we had to tell him what Kelly was doing, and she saw us coming up to him and got pissed. She walked away from where she was waiting to talk to Tupac. Yes, there were that many chicks up in there all lined up. And she said, let's just go. And in the car, she called us a bunch of lame virgins. But we didn't care. I said she was a skank for trying to do that, and she wanted me out of her car, but nobody would let her do that either. We never really hung out again after that. Oh well, I didn't really like her that much anyway. When we met, it was because she said I tried to steal her boyfriend, but I didn't. He came on to me. He was the captain of the basketball team, and I didn't even know he was a basketball player at all. I was just trying to study for my SATs, and that is a whole other story. <laughs> okay, I lied. Like four more. Is that too many? Okay. Walter Mosley mostly looked at our cleavage. 
I was with three friends at AWP and didn't think that was appropriate at writing functions. I was so green a grad student and probably shouldn't be saying this now, but for whatever reason, he felt comfortable enough to lower his eyes slowly chestward, then raise them and say, you have to write every single day. I am from Los Angeles, obviously, and the first famous man I saw was Eddie Murphy. We were on Slauson. It was dark early because of winter, and we got off the bus with my mother. We had just seen Beverly Hills Cop a few weeks before, and I looked into the junkie brown car at the stoplight and said, Mama, that is Eddie Murphy. And I pointed. My sister said, That is him. And she pointed. We had on matching purple and pink coats from Montgomery Wards, and I could tell he mouthed to the passenger, I think they recognize me. And he laughed, a real Eddie Murphy laugh. We could see all his teeth, and he beeped the horn, and we all waved as he drove off. And I wondered why the hell he was in that junkie car with a guy in a striped tracksuit. I think I was eight. <laughs> Comedians can be the best. 20 years ago, I sat in the front row at this comedy spot off Fairfax with my sister when Chris Tucker first came to LA. He was skinny and young, and I wanted to stop laughing during his set because I had done like 100 crunches that day, but I couldn't. It hurt, but I just couldn't. We had dinner there, too, and my sister had three hot wings left, and he said, I'm hungry, damn it, and looked at her food and looked at her and said, give me that chicken. You ain't going to eat that chicken. And she passed him the plate, and he ate it right there at the microphone. This is some good-ass chicken, he said. And this other comedian stopped us on the way out. He wasn't anywhere near as funny as Chris Tucker, but whatever, he was sort of charming, gave me his card and said there was a party the next day. He wrote down the address. I went with a friend. When we got there, there was no party, just him and a huge guy who seemed shysty. And my friend was like, nope. But we had to use the bathroom and had driven all the way there in the valley in my centra, and he was a comedian. What the fuck was he going to do? So we had to go in. He tried to give us drinks, but I didn't drink back then. And when I came out of the bathroom, he pressed me to the wall and tried to kiss me and fill me up, but I was a head taller than he was. And my white platform shoes, yes, white platform sandals and drawstring linen pants. And he played with the string. I said, oh, I left something in the car that I brought for you. And my friend was already outside smoking a beady, and we got the F out and back on the 101. And wouldn't you know it, a few months later, Chris Tucker and Faison Love came to Musicland where I worked and pretended to buy a polka tape. He made me ring it up and everything, which got on my nerves because I had to avoid the ticket. He said, what the hell would I look like bumping polka? And the way he was looking at me like I was a plate of chicken and got too close and asked if I had a boyfriend, which I did. Actually, that boyfriend would rape me later that week right behind my apartment in an old Toyota Corona wearing his <laughs> Crenshaw high school letter jacket. He was the quarterback, neighborhood famous. Oh, well, it's the end of 1993 anyway. And Chris Tucker kind of made me nervous at the same time I was trying not to laugh. Prince called me up called me up on stage at the Pontiac Silver Dome. And my scary ass didn't go up there. My sisters waited in line for hours so we could get good tickets, and we lucked up on the eighth row and used the light bill money to pay for it. I mean, who needs lights when you got Prince? And the day before the concert, I bought a super tight electric blue column dress from Charlotte Russe at the Livonia Mall. It had a back of the knee high slit. I was 21, and we all screamed when the beautiful one started up, and I began to cry, even though he didn't play any of the old hits straight. But because everything was spectacular, I didn't sit in my seat the whole time and was losing my voice. And then a burly guy with a headset motioned that I should go with him and come on stage. And what? I froze. I mean, what? I knew that dress did not make me look shy. But I thought if I went up there, I would faint. And I'm not the best dancer. I thought I'd probably cry like an idiot and then pass out and wake up and pass out again. So I said no. Shook my head no, my heart beating fast and sweating my dress into a darker blue. All right, last one. Thanks for hanging in there, you guys.
any other name. Khadijah means wife of the prophet. Nothing about my name is casual. Your mouth has to make an effort. You have to commit to all eight letters, all three syllables, no nickname. It means something Uber drivers, the Muslim ones, all men want to tell me about even after I say yes when they ask, do I know? Happened yesterday, in fact. They want to know how old I am and where I'm from. They want to get in my business. Where is my husband? Some men can't stop telling me who I am or what exactly is so incredible about me or what they had to take or offer without asking. They still say it's my fault I am beautiful. I was raised as a Muslim. In the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful, shouldn't I thank God for the kind of beauty that makes me so desirable an object, so in demand by strangers, you might say my name cursed me to solitude. I don't see any prophets around, do you? If so, pass out my number, tell him I said, what's up, where you been all my life? <laughs> I know it's a line, but people like familiar things, like fellow boring straight people. Hey, I'll be 44 in a few years, and I have a tradition to live up to, a prophecy perhaps, chop, chop. I cut off my hair because I wanted to begin again with something on my body no man has touched. I wanted to press rewind. I still want the kind of purity that cures men of acculturated entitlement. I want a little silence when I walk down the street or get into the back seat of a hired car in any city I travel to. Maybe I have to marry myself. Maybe I am my own prophet. I want to stop reacting and keep creating, and to do that, maybe I need a new kind of hijab that makes me safer unseen, free of both sound and adornment. I could use that kind of safety. Sartre said hell is other people, and by the token of time through the ages, surely a French philosopher knows whether man equals less than desire, and surely man is in loss except those who do good works and enjoin one another to the truth and enjoin one another to patience and constancy. My mother told me I should keep some things to myself. She should have said keep yourself to yourself, but it was in her nature to be generous. I learned that kind of giving leads to further taking and it's a light that attracts parasites. What's an ex-Muslim girl to do? Keep praying. The world of prophets is elite. They don't just let anyone in, LOL, not wives. And sometimes I want to cut myself out of all possible institutional pictures. Sometimes I am in a collage I made myself and I have a new name. I have a name I have given myself and I'm the only one who knows what it means. But that doesn't make sense, bismillah rahman rahim Like the first time I was taken from myself, my father asked me what I learned. And that is what I learned. I learned I had no father, but I could walk in the rain and let my hair rise up in the night, become a black halo, a mean, curling closer to my head as if to love it, softly greeting, greeting as if saying, peace be unto me. A man can break you with your own love if you don't remember who you are among the non-believers. All praise is due to the part of me that listens to herself first. The first time I drew a rose, I couldn't stop layering in new petals. My small right hand filled the flimsy newsprint with red Crayola spirals, the lines unbroken, the endless making as sweet as being out of the order other people like to think you are born to. Thank you very much.
You can buy both of those books. Um, Friday, we have Caitlin Berrigan and Marianne Shanine reading. And on Wednesday, we have a uh, tribute to Bill Kushner celebrating the release of Wake Me When It's Over, his selected poems. Thank you both so much. Good night.